0: Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Congressman Brad Sherman. He is currently serving his 13th term in Congress and has served in the House of Representatives since 1997. He represents California's 30th district, which encompasses western parts of the San Fernando Valley and parts of Ventura County. Congressman Sherman currently serves on three major House committees. He is the senior member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, a senior member of the House Financial Services Committee, and a member of the House Science, Space and Technology Committee. In 2019, Congressman Sherman was elected to serve as chairman of the House Financial Services Subcommittee on Investor Protection, Entrepreneurship and Capital Markets. He previously served as chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Asia Subcommittee. Congressman Sherman, thank you so much for joining us and passing judgment with us.
1: Good to be with you, Jessica.
0: So I want to jump right in. I think on so many people's mind is the tragedy of the mass shooting of children in their school last week in Texas. And I know that you've been talking about gun control for a long time. It's not something that is new for you. And I want to ask you, do you feel this in a moment where Congress is going to act and implement some gun control, or are we going to see a repeat, frankly, of, I think, what happened after Sandy Hook?
1: I would suspect that if there's some small concession that the NRA is willing not to endorse, but at least not actively oppose, maybe we could do something. But it's going to be hard, and people ask why. There's a lot of talk about gerrymandering, where you might draw a congressional district a little this way or a little that way. By far, the biggest gerrymander is our state borders. A person in South Dakota or North Dakota has over 40 times the representation in the U.S. Senate as someone here in California. And that is probably the biggest barrier to passing uh, gun control measures that have majority support uh, maybe even two-thirds support across the country but don't have the support of north dakota or south dakota
0: so right now what i hear you saying is that the biggest obstacle is a political one and it's really that the senate is by definition a counter-majoritarian institution where we have small states who have i think you used the statistically, I've seen this before, 40 times the representation. Obviously, we're both here in California. And I have two senators, a state of 40 million people. Same is true for Wyoming, Montana, Rhode Island, places with maybe a 40th of the population. Am I right that that feels like the biggest obstacle, a political roadblock here?
1: Well, it's also a a cultural Even if the country generally agrees on this or that practical measure, there are a lot of places where even if people might agree to this or that practical measure, they're very distrustful of politicians who are suggesting it because they think, well, yes, you want to just deal with the gun show loophole, but we've heard of you people out in California, you really just want to take all our guns. So someone running for office proposing this or that practical measure may actually be viewed harshly by people who agree on the particular measure involved but look after we've seen not just buffalo but texas 18 year old followed by an 18 year old you've got to ask what kind of country is it where somebody can't be trusted with a six pack of coors but is trusted with a small arsenal of weapons
0: so You've served in the highest levels of our federal government for a long time. And I heard you say something really important, which is that it's not just politics. It's a cultural issue Mm -hmm. in the sense that maybe people don't trust what their representatives are telling them in terms of where the gun control would go and where it would stop, that there would be a limiting principle. And I'm wondering if you have advice for... I want to talk about trust in government more broadly in a moment, but how can we convey to people, if you were running in one of those districts, what's the best advice for explaining that we're not trying to take away every gun, we're looking at things like red flag warnings, we're looking at things like background checks, like limits on assault weapons. Is there a way to try and break through that distrust?
1: There is, although someone running in rural Virginia and breaking through that trust, if they tried to win a primary in California, would be in a lot of trouble because they would support only certain measures. And in a primary in a highly Democratic or highly Republican district, the emphasis tends to be, are you absolutely dedicated to the most extreme version of the position? And there's not a lot of interest among voters in the country in how can we compromise. There is a lot more attention to how can we win absolutely on our issue. And it's not a good thing for the country. But the number of voters who would say, I just want the process to work, even if I lose, is smaller and smaller. And the group that says, we've got to prevail on our issue, is more and more intense.
0: I have, from the outside, not serving in Congress, observed the same thing. And you said we're more concerned about winning a lot of times than compromise. Can you point to a few things that have caused that? It does feel like, you know, I see statistic after statistic and graphic after graphic that we're more polarized than we used to be.
1: The economics and technology of media when we were a divided country over the Vietnam War, every city had a newspaper, and that was the pretty much the only newspaper you could buy, and that newspaper had to try to appeal to everyone in the city. Now, you don't buy a newspaper. You screen a newspaper. Maybe you pay for the subscription on your pad, but you don't go out and buy a newspaper. Newspaper isn't something dropped in your driveway, so it can... Instead of a newspaper having to appeal to everyone in a community, there you have a choice of uh, 500 different newspapers Subscribe to the one that fits your preconceptions. And then, of course, in broadcast media, we had Walter Cronkite tell us every night what happened in Vietnam. We accepted that as the fact, and then we argued about the opinion. And you had your choice, channels two, four, and seven. That's where you got your news. Now you had cable TV where the emphasis was on getting extreme and that's where the ratings are. And then now you have your tablet, your iPhone, where it's programmed to keep feeding you the things that you agree with. And the result is that people not only have different opinions, they have different facts and then they even have different belief as to what story is even relevant. There are whole stories on right-wing media that if you're not on right-wing media, you don't even know that story is there. You don't have a disagreement about the facts. You're not aware that there's a subject. And that has pulled the country apart. And then people look at Congress and say, oh, why are you guys so divided? We're representatives, literally. And it's not just the name of uh, the House of Representatives. It is a fact. And you don't realize how divided the country is if you live in one place. I live in one place, but I hang out with successful politicians from 434 other places. And you don't realize how divergent the country is if you just talk to people in West L.A. or the San Fernando Valley and don't spend any time in rural Oklahoma.
0: Congressman Sherman, I think you brought up two really important points there that I pulled out of what you said, this idea of all of us living in echo chambers, many of us don't have the opportunity to be representatives, to live in one area and then work with people from all over the country with divergent views and divergent experiences. And second, this idea that we really aren't reading from the same script anymore, that we don't have accepted facts. I even heard you say we don't really even have accepted stories. And that we live in just a very different, not to use a buzz phrase, but media ecosystem. And of course, this doesn't even address the fact that we have disinformation campaigns. Or it does address it, but it's slightly to the side of it, which is we have people who are actively lying to us, both on social media and elsewhere.
1: That isn't new. We've had lying in politics for as long as we've had politics, but we now have this separation. I mean, if you're running the newspaper in a city appealing to everyone, then you don't feature the lies of one side or the other. Uh, You might mention them and then provide some balance. The money to be made in media is by being unbalanced and embracing one set of distortions or another.
0: So is there a legislative fix to that?
1: I wish there was. Being a law professor, you're aware of the First Amendment. It would be very hard to say to those who are not using the public airwaves the way that broadcast does, that they can't have this view or that view. And I'd be, frankly, very skeptical. I mean, I hear from my side all the time, why don't we have a law telling the other side they can't lie? And... um, you know why we have a First Amendment. It's not to protect the speech that you agree with or you think is accurate. The First Amendment is there to protect the speech that you disagree with and think is a pack of lies. And every political communication I'm aware of is considered a pack of lies by somebody who would like to be running our government.
0: Right. And so we have this problem that social media doesn't fit neatly within the FCC rubric as you said it's not over the public airwaves and of course we have i think for good reasons this robust first amendment tradition where as you said again this is not about protecting speech we agree with and in fact it is about protecting speech that's critical of the government but of course no right is absolute we have obscenity laws and decency incitement defamation. But given what you said, I wonder if you think the solution then is for private companies to do more. So should Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, should they become more involved in, we use the word, deplatforming and kicking people Mm -hmm. off because they're peddling disinformation? Or are you worried about private actors also acting as the, you know, quote unquote, speech police?
1: We have always allowed the platform to determine what's on the platform. I submitted an op-ed to the New York Times. They chose not to publish it. And if we're going to allow newspapers to say, we decide what we publish, then uh, the electronic media shouldn't be in any different position. The only thing there is, and this is murky because the Facebooks of the world, I mean, they're caught on the one hand, this is our platform and we have the right to take down what we think is inappropriate. And we realize that that means people in society will tell us that we should use that power in this way or that way. At the same time, they want to say, we can't possibly police everything that is posted at least for a while. And therefore it's not our publication. We shouldn't be sued for it. If I submit an op-ed to the New York times in the old days filled with defamation, you know, they put a lot of work into deciding whether to publish it. And if it's filled with defamation, they probably shouldn't do it. Whereas, uh, how long would it take you to find defamation looking at Facebook right now? They wouldn't take very long at all.
0: About 0.3 seconds, I suspect.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so we really haven't decided whether socially they can't be absolutist and say, we're going to let everything up because society will reject them as major institutions. On the other hand, they can't say, we're only going to let things up that we think should be up because the amount being published on Facebook in one day exceeds what was published in every newspaper in the country in the whole 20th century.
0: They could. It's just not practically possible. As a private actor, they could do whatever they want.
1: Yeah. Legally, they could become more like a newspaper and curate and review and edit everything that goes up, but then they wouldn't be Facebook or Twitter.
0: You've obviously thought about this a good deal. Are you optimistic about where we are in five to 10 years with respect to those two problems that I think you highlighted this idea that we're in echo chambers. We're reading what already supports our views and we're not really reading from the same script. Again, this idea of no accepted facts. Have you kind of played out in your mind where you think this might be going?
1: I don't think it gets particularly better or worse. I think this is the new normal. And the way you defeat bad facts and lies is with good facts, Uh, not by muzzling a disinformation campaign, but by refuting it. And you're not going to be entirely successful. There are going to be some people who believe the falsehoods. You just hope that uh, you have a majority who are convinced of the facts. I don't see uh, a reason to be optimistic that we're going to return to uh, the calmness of the 1990s. I think politics is going to be tough and contentious. Society is changing. In times of stasis, disagreements are kind of downplayed. Even people who disagree with the status quo adjust to, well, I guess that's going to be the status quo this decade. When things are changing, it's much harder to get people to go along with a change they disagree with.
0: Congressman Sherman, I know that our time is limited. So I want to go to another topic where I think our society will be changing very soon. And I know that you've obviously followed the Supreme Court's leaked opinion in the Dobbs case. That's the case Mm -hmm. where, at least according to the leaked opinion, and I believe it will stand, uh, the Supreme Court is about to overturn the rights protected under Roe v. Wade. So women will no longer have a constitutionally protected right to obtain an abortion, and this will be left to the states. I know there have been calls by Democrats to try and, quote unquote, codify Roe. And very similar question to what I asked you when we started talking about gun control operating on the inside. Do you see that this is in the realm of possibility? I think for many of our listeners, it's not something that feels at all likely, feasible, but not likely.
1: Well, keep in mind, just as there's an effort to codify Roe, There's an effort to make abortion illegal from conception nationwide. And as a practical matter, if abortion rules are liberal in half the states and restrictive in the other half, as a matter of principle and ideology, you'd say that's unacceptable. But as a matter of practice, it means First of all, most abortions are now done by a pill. The state could try to make a pill illegal that's legal in California but illegal in their state. All I'd say is marijuana is legal in my state, and uh, I'm not sure that I can't get any kind of California weed just about anywhere I want in Nebraska. Both sides want to fight to win nationwide. If it remains at the states, then Not only will half the states have liberal rules, but those liberal rules, whether it's distribution of a pill or whether it's travel or whatever, will be as a practical matter available to women in 95 percent of the cases in those other states. So a state by state rule means that the liberal side wins 100 percent in half the places and 90 percent in the other half. On the other side of this, if you have a national rule against abortion, then you could perhaps prohibit the pill nationwide and make it very tough to get, et cetera, et cetera. But people have seen Roe v. Wade our whole adult lives and just assume, well, either it's going to be Roe v. Wade nationwide or it's going to be state by state the fact is that the other side would like to get a a national rule as tough as anything ever proposed in the Oklahoma state legislature.
0: I think you're more optimistic than I am. I've written a little bit about this tension between the abortion pills that are authorized by the FDA. And of course the rules changed during the pandemic to allow those to be mailed without an in-person visit Mm -hmm. and the tension between the states that are trying to ban those pills now So obviously, we don't know how that's going to play out.
1: I mean, I don't know. We've had the phrase back alley abortion as it may be a back alley where you buy an FDA certified packaged product with instructions. The same thing you would buy in California on Main Street would be in a back alley in Nebraska. That's not a good answer, but it's a way better answer than what we had before, uh, you know, back in the 1950s.
0: And of course, I think we'd probably agree, it just exacerbates inequalities like the people who have access to that back alley and and the people who don't. But you mentioned what I think has been lost in some of the discussions after the Dobbs leak, which is that there is a concerted effort to have a national rule against abortion. And again, I'm going to ask, based on your vantage point as a a member of Congress, an Is that something that you see as happening, at least in the short term or the midterm? I think people have lost sight of the fact that there could be legislation that's not just something we talk about, but something that is seriously debated about completely prohibiting abortion so that it's not a patchwork. And Mm -hmm. every state becomes a state where you have to go to the backest of back alleys.
1: People who are liberal and in Los Angeles only think of how we're going to move things forward as if it's guaranteed that we're moving forward. And that's not guaranteed. You can drive north. You can drive south. The thing that would have to happen to get either nationwide rule is an abolition of the filibuster. Now, I'm for getting rid of the filibuster because I believe in democracy. But democracy then means you can go all the way one direction or all the way the other. During 2017 and 2018, Trump didn't get most of his legislative agenda through because we had a filibuster. Now, it's a matter of faith on the liberal side. We get rid of the filibuster, then we pass good legislation. Another possibility is you get rid of the filibuster, then you pass bad legislation. So it can certainly go in either direction. I've been involved in politics since I was seven or eight years old. As a teenager, I would be knocking on doors, begging people to go vote. I'd been to their polling place. I saw they hadn't voted. And they'd say, nah, it doesn't matter. I don't want to walk two blocks. They're all the same. And since Donald Trump, no one has ever told me they're all the same and it doesn't matter who gets elected. That is the one civics improvement in the silver lining, if you will. People now understand that elections have consequences.
0: Congressman Sherman, I know that our time is coming to an end and you've been very generous with it. And I want to actually end by asking about something you just said, which is you said I got involved in politics when I was seven or eight years old. Can you talk to us about how as a seven or eight year old, how did you decide yes, I want to be involved in politics. And what exactly does that mean? What did you do as a second or third grader?
1: Well, I think a lot of of kids say, hey, how can I make things better? And the most typical thing is go help someone who's poor or charity work in one way or another, put money in the Sadaka box, et cetera. And the issue uh, when I uh, was seven was open housing. Most people listening to this don't even know that that was an issue. Believe it or not, when I was uh, seven, there was an active argument as to whether it would be just fine for people to discriminate as to where people of color would be allowed to live. And, you know, you don't have to be a genius even at age seven to say that shouldn't happen. And uh, the good news back then was we didn't have the automation that we do now. They, uh, They needed volunteers to stick labels on envelopes. And now machines do that, but not in the 60s. So what does a seven-year-old do? Uh, Put labels on envelopes for the open housing candidate for city council. And, you know, at a little bit older age, you can go door to door, either with somebody else or by yourself and drop off literature. And it's good to see some of this grassroots is back. The the machines slap on the labels, but uh, going door to door is very much back in politics.
0: And it's something that adults can do as well. It might not be as much fun or Instagram worthy as some of the things, but it does make a difference on the local level, on the national level. And Congressman Sherman, I really want to thank you for spending this time with us and for sharing your views on a variety of topics. It's been really elucidating.
1: Happy to do it anytime, and thank you for creating a great podcast.
0: Thank you. And I'm going to remind everybody that they can follow Congressman Brad Sherman at Brad Sherman on Twitter. He tweets frequently. And I want to thank everybody for listening. Please, of course, rate, review, subscribe. We wish everybody a wonderful day, and we will talk to you soon.